We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The voice of LBJ, who got himself dug into a war he just couldn't get out of. And talk about war makers. Nixon rather liked war as well. But Nixon's advisor, Bob Haldeman, called Henry Kissinger the, quote, hawk of hawks in the Oval Office. That says quite a bit. The question is, how much blood is on the hands of Henry Kissinger? How influential is his legacy today? Sure, he personally made sure the American war in Vietnam lasted five years beyond when it could have easily ended and ended with better results. Many of us are also at least somewhat aware of Kissinger's direct role in the September 11th, 1973 coup in Chile, which brought down democracy and caused thousands to die. And his role in the vicious carpet bombing of Cambodia is also known by historians. From the new book by today's guest, uh, Greg Grandin, whose new book is called Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman, We also learn about his rather bloody fingerprints in Iran, Pakistan, and what's now Bangladesh, Laos, East Timor, Southern Africa, and in Saudi Arabia. Kissinger's is a very long shadow, continuing into George Bush's disastrous war in Iraq and beyond. Many of today's disastrous instabilities trace back to the wheels Kissinger set in motion And even at age 92, he worked against Obama's nuclear deal with Iran and continues to have an influence on much of U.S. foreign policy. His power has been and continues to be of historic and extremely tragic proportion. Our guest describes the book as being about not Kissinger's outside outsized personality, but, quote, rather on the outsized role he had in creating the world we live in today, which accepts endless war as a matter of course. Greg Grandin, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the new book, again, is called Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. He's also author of The Empire of Necessity, Fordlandia, Empire's Workshop, and The Blood of Guatemala. Grandin is professor of history at New York University and served uh, on the U.N. Truth Commission investigating the Guatemalan Civil War and has written for the L.A. Times, The Nation, of course, New Statesman, and The New York Times. Well, again, thanks for being with us. There's no lack of books both by Kissinger or about Kissinger 
What was missing? What prompted you to write this new book, Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman? Well, what prompted me was actually a request from a from a newspaper in, in, in London to to write an obituary, to have it on file huh. for when he, <laughs> you know, because you know these obituaries already written oh, yes. and all ready to go. They just updated. Um, and, and as I was thinking about doing that, I thought, you know, there's a story here. There's a story about Kissinger's rehabilitation. There's a story about his misrecognition, the way he's understood to be a realist and somehow opposed to the, you know, what we might think of as the adventurism of the neoconservatives who drove us into disastrous wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and committed us to a to what now is seemingly an endless war uh, yes. against the concept, terrorism. The concept. Um, yeah. And Kissinger is, is, was often held up as, as more of a sober realist. And hmm. the more I read about him and thinking about doing this obituary, the more I, 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 I realized that, that that is actually um, mistaken. And in that misrecognition, there's an education. There's an educate. I think that the inability to see Kissinger and see the kind of will to power idealism yeah. that, that in which, that, that drives a lot of his, that underwrites his philosophy of history and his philosophy of diplomacy is the degree that we misrecognize American power and what, and what drives American power in the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. As, as I was reading this, I mean, what comes out is Kissinger's personal intense will to power. And you write that, quote, Kissinger provided a new generation of politicians a template for not just to justify tomorrow's action while ignoring, uh, for, for how to rather, for how to justify tomorrow's action while ignoring yesterday's catastrophe. So ignore tomorrow's action. Uh, and and it, it's just amazing to me. You say that for Kissinger, quote, hunches, conjecture, will and intuition are as important as facts and hard intel intelligence as guiding policy, that too much knowledge can weaken resolve. And he had that criticism, as you write about uh, oh, people like Henry McNamara, who was uh, defense secretary at the time. He seemed to value, above all, action as necessary for American po foreign policy Inaction was to be avoided at all costs. Yeah, so Kissinger served as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State between 1969 and 1977. Prior to that, he was a prominent defense intellectual in the 50s and 60s. And prior to that, he was yeah. a student at Harvard. He did his undergraduate and his graduate studies at Harvard. And prior to that, he was in the military intelligence during World War II, uh, having come to the United States as a young a young boy, uh, a refugee from Bavaria, from Nazi Germany. Um, Kissinger, if you actually go back, Kissinger was very much influenced by a strand of, of German idealism or subjectivism. Mm -hmm. Now, popularly, you know, re or the audience might associate this with somebody like Friedrich Nietzsche, a kind of will, mocked politics, a will to power, um, Kissinger, I mean, but it's, that's, a, that's a deep current within German romanticism, and, and Kissinger actually came to it through the work of an historian uh, named Oswald Spengler, who right. is very much influential among militarists in the United States. Spengler was, wrote a famous book in the early 20th century about the rise and fall of great empires, and, um, 
And Kissinger's critique in the 1950s of the Eisenhower administration and then in the 1960s of the Kennedy administration, um, if you actually look at it, it's very much influenced by this idea that, um, you know, the technocrats have taken over, the, the bureaucrats, the economists. We've, we know that we can project our power, but we forgot why we've projected our power. We don't have a sense of our purpose. We don't have a sense of ourselves. Um, we've mistaken information for wisdom. Right. Um, this is all, uh, this is a kind of, this is a strand of American militarism that, that every generation throws up. Every time there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a retrenchment from some foreign policy disaster, um, and uh, there's a new generation of militarists who say we've got to go f- further. We've got to re- regain our sense of confidence. We've got to regain right. our sense of purpose. And that was Kissinger in the 50s and 60s before he became national security advisor. So that's what I look at. I look at the origins of his political philosophy, and then I, I try to index it or peg it to his specific actions in Cambodia yeah. and elsewhere. And then I try to look at how... Kissinger himself becomes that ab- object of critique by these neoconservatives who use, who's, you know, that first generation of neoconservatives, uh, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Cheney, um, William Irving Kristol, uh, that, that became very influential in the late 70s after defeat in Vietnam, and, and then they came into power after 9-11 with George Bush. Yeah. The philosophy of history that motivated Kissinger in the 50s and 60s was very much their philosophy of history. Um, you mentioned the idea of hunches and conjecture. Think yeah. about Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine, the idea that if if there's a 1% chance that some threat is going to be realized against the United States, we have to act as if there's a 100% chance of that. That's Kissingerism. Wow. And beyond that, that's this kind of German subjectivism, this, kind of, this sense that there's something more important than information, there's something more important than statistics and intelligence. There's will, there's intuition, there's hunches. And, this, and the point of this book is to go use Kissinger to, in some way to go beyond Kissinger, to, to use Kissinger to get at the deeper currents in American exceptionalism. We are talking on Keeping Democracy Alive with author Greg Grandin about his new book, Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. And that idea of, you know, history and facts don't really matter that much. You know, it's like just some gut feeling. And and as you write, Kissinger had certainty while winging it. And, you know, just... It, it amazes me that, uh, you know, he, he was angry at Defense Secretary McNamara because he had, quote, a surplus of facts, which led to a deficit of conviction. That, that just is amazing to me. And, and in a similar, uh, to me, rather odd mind, Kissinger, as you write, believed himself to be a revolutionary. How, in that he believed he was liberated from the past. Uh, what did he mean by thinking himself as a, a, a revolutionary, being quite well, liberated? Well, if you actually read his writings in the 1950s and then following it forward, you know, starting with his more philosophical writings and then as they became more focused on policy and history, Kissinger was very much influenced. I mean, if you read it, it's it's post-war existentialism. You know, you 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 would read his undergraduate thesis and 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 you would think of Jean-Paul Sartre, the idea that. Uh, there is no inherent meaning right. in, in social relations. The past, you know, there is no truth to the past other than what we subjectively 
in our present assigned to it. Um, their life is, you know, life and existence is pointless and meaninglessness, meaning, right. meaningless, except for the meaning that we give it through our actions. Right. So, you know, that is that that that's very much what Kissinger was arguing in the 1950s. It was in the post-war kind of existential era. What's unique about Kissinger is that most of the post-war generation that went on to be influenced by existentialism went on to criticize empire and imperialism and war and militarism. Uh, Kissinger is useful because he, and he's both unique and exemplary, because he um, he put his existentialism, his unique mix of a kind of gloom that there is no meaning or moral structure to the universe, and glee, that within that meaningless, we could carve out a sphere of freedom, um, and and uh, you know, and and uh, to, to to justify war and to justify militarism. And you know, Kissinger has has never one. I mean, what's unique about Kissinger is that he never re- he hasn't he doesn't express an iota of regret for right. anything that he's done, which I think. Um, which I think makes him unique. You know, you mentioned McNamara. McNamara, Robert yeah. McNamara, Secretary of Defense under, under, under Kennedy and Johnson, came to symbolize the kind of bureaucrat, the systems analysis, yeah. analyst that, that, that sought to rationalize uh, war-making, the logistics of war-making, the tactics of war-making to, to, to economics. And, um, and Kissinger was an early critic of that kind of systems analysis uh, uh, framework. Um, and, and, but then later on, Mike Amaro, of course, is famous for apologizing and, right. and regretting uh, Vietnam and the destruction of millions and millions of lives. And Kissinger, yes, there's millions. a great story by a reporter who ran into Kissinger during that moment when McNamara was making the rounds of talk shows and apologizing, um, where this reporter said, well, I just interviewed McNamara, and Kissinger said, oh, he's still, he's still crying, boo-hoo, and then Kissinger kind of mocks McNamara, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, there's a, there's a moral horror to that story, yes. <laughs> you know, that, you know, this is, you know, there's, you know, there's not, there's not a moment of doubt, and I think that that steadfastness and certainty, um, again, I think it's unique to Kissinger, or but also we see it in Cheney, and we see it in some of these other guys. Um, but I think it also um, it also has a, has a philosophical foundation that I think is useful to get at. Yeah, it really is, and I, I wonder, you know, as you say, I mean, the title is Kissinger's Shadow. We are still under Kissinger's shadow. He is still, for the moment, alive, and it it seems unlikely that he will ever be prosecuted before he uh, passes from this earth, which I think is a, is a terrible shame. And who knows how, you know, he'll, when he dies, what the uh, people, what the people in power will say. You know, probably uh, amazingly to me, somehow refer to him as a great statesman. It, it just is appalling to me how he could be seen that way. And you know, you write about Kissinger's certainty while winging it, and just you know, the necessity of projecting power just for the sake of projecting power and somehow that making some sense on its own. But but there is a, a context, a, a traditional American context that, that we must, as New York Times uh, columnist David Brooks said in an October 20th column, we must oversee global order. 
And that sounds kind of Kissingerian. In our 19th century belief in manifest destiny, have we not oftentimes also had certainty while winging it? I mean, it seems sort of out of that context as well as the German context of, uh, you know, just yeah, trusting yeah. your gut. Well, there's certainty, but I mean, but again, to be more specific to Kissinger's time, when you look back at all of those post-war policymakers and defense intellectuals, those, those, the, you know, that had that had enormous influence in creating the kind of global structure. George Kennan, uh, you right. know, came up with the idea of containment. Um, uh, Hans Morgenthau, who was the dean of post-war realism, Arthur Schlesinger, uh, kind of a liberal, um, you know, cold center. warrior, Reinhold Niebuhr, who who is now held up as somebody who 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 is you know um, who who gives um, kind of uh, moral justification for 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 the turn towards the Cold War after World War Two. All of these guys expressed moments of doubt. They all came to break with the national security state over either Vietnam or Reagan's arms buildup or Central America, and some became increasingly critical. I mean, sure. you know, vehemently critical. Somebody like Kennan called Reagan arrogant and ignorant, and you know, and condemned the arms buildup. And, um, and you know, all everybody except Kissinger. Again, you know what is unique about Kissinger is that he's never expressed a moment of doubt. And it's not just that he's not. And the and 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 his um and his uh, um, usefulness as a way of understanding the United States isn't just that he's certain and has expressed certainty. It's that with every lurch to the right of American politics, he's lurched with it. So he starts off as a a Rockefeller Republican. He's an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller. When it's clear that the Republicans have been taken over by the Goldwaterites and then the Nixonites, yeah. um, he abandons right Rockefeller and he joins with Nixon. Then he makes his peace with Reagan, even though he thought Reagan was crazy and hollow. Then he makes his peace with the neocons, even though the neocons rise to power attacking him. So I think there's something instructive in his willingness to make his peace with every moment of America, every every lurch to the right, every lurch towards more war and more militarism. Well, he was so self-confident. He, he just, uh, incredible ambition. And which which brings up uh, one of the next topics here. Cambodia was invaded, of course, in 1969. And you know, I, many years ago, I read William Shawcross's very impressive book on Kissinger in Cambodia called Sideshow. And I was astounded by Kissinger's insistence on the most brutal bombing possible. And I, Kissinger's motivation for invading Cambodia had a lot to do with domestic politics and self-advancement, did it not? Yes. Um, I mean, you know, it's all bound up with it, it's, and it's hard, to, it's hard to unravel Cambodia from everything else. I mean, there's a, there's a you know, one could tell the story. So Kissinger, um, in, in 19, late 1968, when he's making his bid to be taken seriously by the Nixon campaign, begins to pass information about the peace talks that are going on in Paris between the Johnson administration and Hanoi. Um, that has the effect of, of derailing the peace talks, because Nixon uses the information oh, yeah. to tell Saigon that he can get a better deal uh, uh, if, if he's president. He becomes president and points Nixon... He points Kissinger, um, Secretary, uh, National Security Advisor, but then they have to, but then they have to resume peace talks because they because 
Nixon campaign promised to get the U.S. out of war. You, he couldn't, for domestic reasons, he couldn't start bombing North Vietnam again. Uh, for dom- but not right away, at least. Right, and for right. domestic reasons, he couldn't bomb Cambodia. So they started bombing Cambodia in secret as a way of pressuring North Vietnam back to the bargaining table, back to talks that Nixon and Kissinger scuttled. Um, you know, and they had to do it in secret because they was afraid that there would be a a backlash. Kissinger, Kissinger, working with his military aide in the National Security Council, uh, uh, Alexander Haig, um, came up with this very elaborate double bookkeeping uh, 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 system in which they could bomb Cambodia and make it look like they were really bombing South Vietnam um, to account for munitions and 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 fuel and spare parts and whatnot. Um, and, and, and this went on for years. Well, the, 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 the super secret part only went on until more or less late 1970 with the invasion, but they continued bombing Cambodia until 1973. They destroyed that country. They yeah. telegraphed the Vietnam War into Cambodia, a country we weren't at war with, a neutral country. Um, that had the effect of, of, of increasing polarization and crisis in Cambodia and um, and, kiss, and 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 giving rise to the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge came to take over the Cambodian opposition, uh, you know, the small clique that probably would have been relatively inconsequential if Kissinger and Nixon hadn't destroyed Cambodia <laughs> with, you know, killing 100,000 civilians and radicalizing the population. And, of course, the Khmer Rouge in 75 go on to... Uh, take over the country and then and then preside over a genocide. So you see, and the, and then meanwhile, the Vietnam War is extended five oh, pointless yeah. years, oh, yeah. uh, at least in terms of U.S. involvement, but even longer in terms of uh, in terms terms. of the war itself, and yeah. and for for no reason. On, and by the time it's ended, or by the time the U.S. negotiates its exit in '73, it did so on terms that were on the table in 1968. Yes, so absolutely, you know that Cambodia becomes central to this story of of uh, of of, of um, that I'm telling and how we got to where we are. And of course, at least it helped Kissinger in his power climb. <laughs> yeah, there's that also. He used, I mean, yeah. Aside from all of this other stuff. Kissinger was able to use, you know, Kissinger was, was famous for his inter, for his inter office rivalries and, and oh, yeah. bureaucratic infighting and in, 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 in grabbing power from the State Department and grabbing power from the Defense Department. And, and one of the ways that he did it was, you know, his, his sole power base was Richard Nixon. Yeah. So he had to prove that he was tough. He had to prove to all those Prussians on Nixon's staff, or Haldeman and Ehrlichman and all of those guys, and that he was willing to be more, a, as, you, as you introduced the segment, a hawk, the hawk of hawks. So he used the bombing of Cambodia to, um, to prove himself to Nixon. And, and, and this, by the way, the other part of this story is that Cambodia begins the, you know, is what leads to Nixon's downfall with Watergate. So this, this way is in which... You know the, the resonance of this isn't just isn't just the crime; it's the it's the consequences of the crime. Crimes don't seem to matter much to him. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's a relative term for for Kissinger. I mean, it's all right. subjective. Yeah, it, it does strike me from reading this and from everything I've known about Kissinger. Morals? Ah, who needs them? You know, they just they, yeah. they just get in the way. I think it's fascinating. You you write that you know with regard to the nineteen sixty eight election when LBJ. Declined to run again because he really wanted to bring peace and allow the peace process to happen, and he figured he couldn't do it. But Kissinger and Nixon, you know, scuttled as you as you write the uh, the peace plans. 
I, I find it fascinating. What did you mean when you write that if the truth had seen the light of day, quote, that information about swinging the election might have caused such an outrage as to have swung the election to Humphrey? Do tell. Yeah, well, uh, Johnson was tapping phones, too. It wasn't really just Nixon. So he he quickly learned what Nixon was up to. Um, mm. And uh, I don't think he knew that that it was Kissinger that was passing the information on, but he, he knew that Nixon had reached out to South Vietnam through a third party and uh, and let South Vietnam know that they would get a better deal if he was elected and that if they went along with the peace talks, that it might, it might help Humphrey. Um, and and uh, Johnson thought it was treasonous, um, but he thought it was such a, I mean, this is the context of the Cold War, right? The Cold War consensus, the idea that, um, the idea that no matter what the opponent does, we kind of have to go along with it because, um, we have to maintain the illusion of institutionalism and, 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 uh, Johnson, Johnson knew that what, you know, that what Nixon did was treasonous and, and he just thought it would be too much of a shock for the American public to absorb it. My goodness. Well, you know, over time, I think Johnson is consistently seen in a better and better light. He did some, uh, it's too bad about Vietnam. He didn't want to be there, but that's discussion for another day. Iran is much in the news these days, of course. You write that by 1976, Kissinger's last full year in office, Iran had become the largest purchaser of American weaponry and housed the largest contingent of U.S. military advisors anywhere on the planet. I wonder if you could describe how this special support for the Shah and his government may have resulted in the revolution of 1979 and prices we might be paying now for Kissinger's yeah, policy. Yeah, so... So this is all part of the post-Vietnam turn towards the Middle East. Uh, you know, part of it was driven by needs to secure energy. Uh, part of it was n- n- driven by the by a kind of um, need to lock down the region after being driven out of Southeast Asia in Vietnam. And um, it was Kissinger. So U.S. was obviously involved with Iran for a long time. Yeah, it uh, it helped the British engineer coup in '53 that installed the Shah against Mossadegh, right. but it really was in '72, '73 that Kissinger starts to um, negotiate the arms deals that <laughs> that would kick off an arms race that's still going on in the Middle East. He drew the U.S. very close to the Shah. His support for the Shah was unconditional, yeah. and um, and uh, he gave the Shah what no other country in the world had, and that was the ability to buy whatever he wanted from the U.S. defense industry. This was a, you know, this, this was a kind of, um, Howard would put it, win-win, at least for a little while, in the sense that not only did it bring the U.S. closer to Iran, with the idea that Iran would be one of the guardians of the Gulf, but um, it, it, it allowed rising petrodollars to be recycled back into the U.S., and specifically either into U.S. banks or the U.S. defense industry, the U.S. defense industry was, was reeling a little bit from what was about to become a post-Vietnam wind-down and, and cut in the defense budget. Yeah, so were... that margin was made up by basically selling to the Shah anything that he wanted. And, of course, there was Kissinger's support. For, um, it wasn't just support wasn't just manifesting in, in, in arms deals. It was, it was support for the Savak, the... The intelligence agency that 
had a reputation for torturing and murdering uh, all sorts of dissidents and Democrats within within Iran. So that creates the um, the dynamic that leads to radicalization and religious mm-hmm. radicalization. But if you're torturing all the secularists and the socialists, then pretty much all you're going to have left are the Ayatollahs, and that's and that's what happened. Yeah, and so thank you, Henry Kissinger, for uh, <laughs> giving us the, the total reaction to that. You know, for yeah. action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, someone said. Certainly <laughs> happened in Cambodia with the terror bombing there and then the terror of, of the Pol Pot regime. So here we are just about 40 years later, uh, and I wonder about, I mean, and it, it's a fascinating description in the book of Kissinger's personal relation with the Shah. I mean, it, you know, Oh, yeah, it was always flattering. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Very fascinating stuff. So here we are, and w- what is the status, I wonder, of that huge supply of weapons that we gave to Iran? I wonder how much of it is still functional and where it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the specifics, but right, obviously the, the Ayatollahs inherited all of that. I mean, then, of course, the Reagan administration sold, sold even more oh, stuff. Yeah, to <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, there, there are also the Kurds in that region, which we've been hearing about more and more. And I find it fascinating that our good ally, Turkey, is determined to defeat the Kurds as the Kurds fight ISIS. So, in a way, yeah. we're, we're, in a way we're supporting ISIS. I wonder how Kissinger's policy toward the Shah may have affected the Kurds and what's going on today with them. Well, and Iran, right? So, um, oh, yeah. so I mean, I'm sorry, and Iraq. Uh, it, yeah, so Kissinger, um, as part of the grand strategy, you know, of, 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 of balancing of power, but of course it just leads to an unbalance. The, uh, Kissinger, the Nixon White House, bombed the Kurds and encouraged them to to um to try to as a way of try to destabilize Baathist Iraq, um, but then in seventy five when Kissinger um, made what what he thought was a, a kind of um, you know he was looking to basically turn Iraq the way that he turned Egypt away from the Soviet Union, he basically served up the Kurds and and uh, and and um, and Iraq launched. You know, way, you know, one of the beginnings of the wave wave of repression against the Kurds with with U.S. tacit approval. Mm-hmm. So, isn't that lovely? It's it's amazing. And then we got Saudi Arabia, another terrific ally from the United States, one of our most valued friendships in the region. Might have something yeah. to do with oil. It's not much in the headlines, but I wonder: is it fair to say that Kissinger's fingerprints on that relationship are still in play? Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, it was still going on. You know, it was it was basically Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan with the with and Egypt. But but in terms of the ongoing, in terms of consequences, um, um, it was Kissinger worked out many of the same arms deals with Saudi Arabia that he did with Iran. Uh, now, when the basis of his warning or 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 criticism of the of Obama's Iranian deal is that it will um, by apparently tilting to Iran, it will kick off a Sunni reaction against Shia Iran and lead to a an arms race. That arms race has been going on for 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 years, yeah. and and uh, and again, it could be traced back to Kissinger drawing Washington very close to the House of Sword and Wahhabism in in Saudi Arabia. Um, so yes, the the ironclad alliance between Washington 
and the House of Sword, just like Iran, it goes back, it predates Kissinger, it's not just Kissinger, but as part of a kind of post-Vietnam turn to the Gulf, it becomes deepened and um, hardened with Kissinger around arms, around petrodollars. One of the uh, amazing quotes, there's quite a large number of them in this book, Kissinger Shadow, <laughs> bargaining power comes from the capacity to hurt. I mean, I just yeah. states it. I did, another one is, can't we overthrow one of the sheikhs just to show we can do it? I just yes. fascinating stuff. Again, you know, I, do you say, did he have any moral compass whatsoever? Well, I guess to be, you know, if one wanted to grant him the benefit of the doubt, sure I not. guess you could say that um, that that uh, that the best one can hope for is to create a world of stability and order and a and a balancing of power between great powers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in which war is a possibility, has the effect of actually creating peace. Mm-hmm. And that within, you know, and that whatever minimum of justice that one could hope for in this fallen world uh, can, only be hap- can only happen with institutional stability. And I guess that would be, that would be how um, Kissingerism could be justified morally. I still think that even if one were to do that, it... Um, it 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 misrecognizes just how much Kissinger actually didn't do that. He he didn't create stability. He created yes. constant instability, a disequilibrium, particularly hmm. in the third world, um, which made war and more intervention uh, inevitable. So even on the terms, more abstract terms, that one might justify. Kissinger. I think that's a misrecognition of what Kissinger actually did. Yeah, the idea of, of having, you know, an unquestioned superpower and a balance of power. One can see the logic in that argument, but right. the actual reality of it, you know, since Kissinger's time, there have been quite a few military acts. Uh, attacks launched by the U.S. executive, uh, including Libya, the Balkans, Iraq, Panama, Grenada. You write that today in the U.S., a shared and largely unquestioned assumption, irrespective of political affiliation, which I think is interesting, holds that Washington has a right to use military force against the, quote, safe havens of terrorists or potential terrorists, even if those havens are found in sovereign countries we are not at war with. And that, of course, right. goes back to Cambodia. I don't think this assumption was there before Kissinger. And I wonder about the future of this justification, this argument for war that Kissinger really you know, turned up the volume to 11 on. Right. Right. I, I mean, I think that, that that's right. I think that, you know, uh, there is this, there is this bipartisan support of, uh, uh, you know, I think part of it is that things have gotten so bad. There's an Kissinger creates a kind of nostalgia. Nah, People misrecognize, and, and they misrecognize Kissinger, and they misrecognize, you know, he invokes uh, purpose or gravitas or Ooh, seriousness, uh-huh. and um, and. And and of course, people are lazy, and they and they don't really look to. I mean, because it just wrote a, a lengthy prescription for what we should do in the Middle East in the Wall Street Journal. You know, I've read that like five times. It's kind of incoherent 
but it doesn't matter that it's incoherent. You know, it, you know, it's it doesn't matter that it's written exclusively in the passive voice. It's unclear like who's doing what or what one should do. What matters is that is that um, Kissinger conveys gravitas. Yes. So that you have the Democrats and the Republicans sidling up to him as as a way of of kind of uh, uh, capturing, and hopefully some of that seriousness will rub off on them. Mm, mm, mm. And so what if a few million people die and lose limbs? Yeah. Right, you know. right. Now, Latin America is, is, is steadily, it seems in general, is steadily continuing to move somewhat leftward. And well before Kissinger, America's leaders called that area our backyard. Of course, right. it's nobody's backyard. Now, right. Kiss, I mean, they live there. Kissinger's deep involvement with that uh, destruction of democracy in Chile is reasonably well known. The governments he favored, of course, excelled in torture and executions with our help. I, right. I, in what way are his Kissinger's policies in Latin America still affecting us today? Well, in what ways are they still affecting us today? Well, um, I think that it meant, well, let's... I mean, there's lots of ways I think that Kissinger made the world more unstable. And, and in, in, I mean, we just talked about the Middle East, but specifically the Gulf region. And Kissinger, Kissinger, out of office, was a constant cheerleader for the militarization of the Gulf, for isolating Iraq. When, in 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, there were a lot of conservatives, Cold War conservatives, who thought, eh, you know, what does it matter who pumps the gas? You know, if, if Iraq wants Kuwait, Kuwait's basically a province of Iraq. Right. You know, let them have it. And, um, you know, Gene Kirkpatrick, for instance, was very much opposed to Bush's uh, troop buildup in Saudi Arabia. Kissinger was one of the first out of the box to push back against what he called the new isolationists. Right. Uh, and he gave a very, um, very strong justification for why we needed to go after Iraq and we needed to put a at the very least liberate Kuwait but he was early on a proponent of regime change so after after the quote unquote liberation of Iraq throughout the 1990s um he was supportive of Clinton's ongoing bombing of Iraq uh but he criticized the motivation he kept on saying it has nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction. It has nothing to do with arms inspection. What it has to do with, and it goes back to your comment earlier about, um, about, about um, incentives for negotiating, he said we have to um, show that, um, that we're willing to match our words with our actions. And, and if we're not willing to negotiate with somebody like Saddam Hussein, we have to prove to ourselves that we're willing to break his back. And um, and that's the real reason we have to bomb Iraq. And then after nine eleven, um, you know, he was he was an early early proponent of mili- of of, uh, of going into not just Afghanistan, Iraq, but Yemen and Pakistan, and Yemen and Somalia as well. He called for a global revolution in international affairs. And then after the public started to turn against Iraq, uh, after Abu Ghraib, right. after Fallujah, after the rise of the insurgency after the whole thing, Kissinger was constantly urging the Bush administration to stay the course. Um, you know, he you know became very close to Dick Cheney 
uh, and was a you know a monthly advisor to you know I don't know each show. Well, I don't. I, I mean, I have no idea, but he was very influential. Yeah. And, um, and then, of course, there's all all everything that he's done. I mean, we've just talked about him on the level in some ways of discourse or rhetoric or ideology. Um, but he, you know, his Kissinger Associates is the most powerful private consultancy in the world, and because it's private, we have no idea what it what it does. And you know, but he was. I, I do know it was very influential in the privatization of Latin American industries in the 1990s. Kissinger, for instance, was helped George H.W. Bush negotiate NAFTA, and then he helped Bill Clinton after 93 get NAFTA through Congress. Um, so he's been, um, you know, we don't really associate Kissinger with economics, but um, but I think that, that you know, the... the the, the kind of neoliberal ec- political economy uh, that has proven disastrous over the last twenty years right. was also very much um, very you know Kissinger has to answer to that also. And, and and what is this Kissinger Associates? I I hadn't heard of it before, and apparently the client list is not available to put it mildly. Tell us about Kissinger Associates. When did that come into uh, uh, being? Pretty and, much right after he. Uh, not immediately, but he set it up at some point after he left office in '77. Um, and and yes, it's a private consultancy, so he doesn't have to reveal a client list. But you, do you you know remember that um, he was appointed head of George Bush's 9/11 Commission? But when some of the more uh, political widows, the so-called Jersey girls, demanded right. that um, Kissinger Associates reveal its client list because they, they wanted to know what his ties to Saudi Arabia were, yeah, really. he uh, immediately withdrew. There's a, there's, a, uh, there's a great memoir by one of those widows. I can't remember her name. Uh, I cited it in the book. But she talks about how they met with Kissinger. And Kissinger thought it was just going to be this pro forma meeting, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. and then they said, you know, we can't, we can't endorse your selection as the chair of the 9-11 Commission until you reveal your client list. And he, they say, I mean, she has a great description of Kissinger like dropping his drone, just spilling right. his coffee or something. It's a funny moment. And um, and he said, well, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you or something. And then the next day, he called up the White House and said he can't do it. There's some conservative senator that said that that client list is the most sought after document in in Washington. They they said that they would they would be willing to uh, to look at it in some secure safe room in the bowels of the Pentagon. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, 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 and Kissinger refused to reveal it. It is amazing about uh, you know his power and the secrecy. In 1961, President John Kennedy said, quote, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. <laughs> right. And now it seems secrecy is actually expected. It, it, the culture of secrecy owes what to Henry Kissinger? Well, I mean, Kissinger... Kissinger is very, um, part of what Kissinger does is he, um, he provides an ideological justification for, for the reaction against the post-Vietnam right. uh, attempt by Congress to, to regulate the imperial presidency, right. attempt by the press to kind of be um, adversarial. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Kissinger was, um, you know, he, he, he felt that statesmen can't do their jobs if they're constantly being monitored. Right. And, you know, um, one, one could 
maybe understand the the motivation for a sentiment like that, but coming from Kissinger, who the more things that are revealed that he did, the more damning it is. I mean, Gary Bass has a book, The Blood Telegram, about the way that Kissinger expedited Pakistan's genocide in bang in what was uh, then called East Bangladesh, and now it's called uh, East Pakistan, is now called Bangladesh. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands were killed, and tens of thousands of women raped. Hundreds of thousands of refugees spilling into India. Um, you know, uh, 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 and that was all because Kissinger wanted to build up Pakistan, both as part of his turn to the Gulf, and because Pakistan was an ally of China. Um, you know, the more that's revealed about South Southern Africa, the yes. way that Kissinger supported white supremacy there, yeah. um, uh, supporting uh, um, insurgencies in Angola, pointless insurgency for no reason, insurgencies in Angola and Mozambique that led to, you know, the, I mean, these continued on after Kissinger left office, but millions dead, two million dead in, in Mozambique and Angola for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um uh, uh, you know, Cambodia, we talked about Cambodia, Operation Condor. Yeah. I mean, the more that's revealed in terms of these, these, these periodic releases of documents and, you know, and, and declassified documents, the more. Because just said that, well, you can't read, you can't read any given document out of context. This is what he complained about after some document was revealed about his close relationship with Pinochet in Chile. And he said, you've got to read them all in, in, you know, in that context, you know, you've got to read them a month at a time. You read them a month at a time, or you read them, you know, or, or seven, six or eight years' worth, and, they, they, you know, they're even more horrific. That's I mean, true. you know, <laughs> you know I, I tried not to focus on Kissinger, the argument that Kissinger's a war criminal. I think it's more important. I think that charge and accusation obscures his importance and allows us to think that, well, if he was expunged from history, then, you know, then America would have a virtuous republic. I don't think that that's true. I think he reveals a larger system. Mm. Um, and so I try to avoid that whole argument. I try to not... My book's not, not a rewriting of Christopher Hitchens, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. I'm right. trying to be more analytical and use Kissinger to understand the evolution of U.S. foreign policy yeah. from Vietnam to the present. But that said... It's fairly clear that Kissinger is a war criminal. <laughs> not for Cambodia, then for Chile, oh, then uh, <laughs> in so many ways, it's 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 really amazing. And as you mentioned, there was a lot of thinking outside the box. You described Kissinger. This is fascinating to me. You described Kissinger's circular reasoning, in which inaction needs to be avoided to show that action is possible. The purpose of American power is to create American purpose. What the heck does that mean? I mean, that's just... Well, that goes back to the earlier conversation that we had at the beginning of the, uh, the, beginning of the, the hour where, um, you know, Kissinger, if, if Kissinger's not a realist, uh, if realism is defined that, the, that, the, that, that, that you believe that reality exists, that, that, that the, the mm-hmm. truth of, the, of, of that reality is apparent in the facts of the world, as they exist independently of our perception, Kissinger doesn't believe that. He believes radical. He believes reality exists. He doesn't believe. He's not a solipsist. He's not. He doesn't believe that. You know, um, but he doesn't believe we have access to that reality apart from our subjective understanding of it. 
he believes that action, our action in the world, creates meaning. Right. You know, this goes back to Kissinger is misrecognized as somebody who believes. I mean, he's constantly saying we need to understand our purpose. We need to understand not just that we can do something, but why we are doing it. But if you actually try to excavate what he means by purpose and get at it, it's there's no there there. Right. Um, you know, he he believes that. Basically, we ha- you know we create our sense of purpose through our action in exactly. the world, and right. and being a, a warmonger and a militarist, he believes that that you know that action has to be the willingness to make war. So so um, you know we can't have a sense of our, our 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 power and our purpose unless we unless we are willing to 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 act out our purpose and our power. And the best way to to become willing is to actually is to actually act. And, and so there's a circularity there that I think captures a circularity of, 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 of a broader circularity of American militarism. Absolutely incredible. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive. The book, Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. I always thought that was kind of an odd description of him, statesman, but I guess he was, in fact, a statesman. Our uh, guest today is author Greg Grandin. And as you describe the neocons that came to power with George W. Bush chafed at the idea that there were limits to American power. It sounds like this, too, might be a legacy of Kissinger, and that aside from Bernie Sanders, my sense is that the people now running for president still buy into this, that there might not be limits to American power. Yeah, well, that is, I mean, this goes back to, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a little, it's a little, sh- it's, you know, Kissinger did believe there were limits to American power. Again, this goes back to his notion that reality did exist, but we don't have access to it unless we act in the world and we create our understanding of that reality. Um, you know, he, he particularly after Vietnam, he believed, I mean, let, let's, let's back up a little bit. Sure. What he did in Cambodia and, 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 and Vietnam was the opposite of believing that there were limits to power. Absolutely. I mean, he... He um, bombed those countries, North Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, to smithereens because he refused to accept the world as it was. Uh, you know, that's the definition of a realist, right? You accept the world as it is. Right. He refused to believe that overwhelming military superiority of the United States couldn't force North Vietnam to its knees. He repeatedly said, I refuse to believe that a fourth-rate peasant power mm-hmm. will not break. And, and it didn't break. Right, I mean, he, you know, but so, but then obviously, being driven, the 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 lesson of Vietnam wasn't completely lost on him. He did he did um, accept that there were limits on on U.S. power, and that was part of détente, and that was part of trying to um, work out a rapprochement with the Soviet Union. And the neocons did react to that. But but my point isn't so much that there wasn't political differences between the neocons because there were there yeah, were over right. Israel there was over détente there were over a lot of things they they hated the word détente they hated the word interdependence with Kissinger used quite often in seventy six and seventy seven and seventy five um, but but um, but the nature of that critique of Kissinger was very similar to the nature of Kissinger's critique of Eisenhower and Kennedy. Right, but you know they 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 become they become resigned to decline, and 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 we need to we need to act in the world in order to 
in order to um, break free of that resignation and understand that we can curb, bend history's curve upward again. Through violence, as he said, uh, bargaining power comes from the capacity to hurt. And yeah. it, it does seem to be the case. And as you write, uh, it is not, or, or, it is ritual among our political class to seek out Kissinger and to engage publicly with him. Both Bill and Hillary Clinton have embraced Henry Kissinger. Hillary, Hillary Clinton has said she, quote, relies on his counsel. Uh, do, do they uh, uh, use his uh, off-the-books approach, do you think? Is that one of the things they like about him? And, w- and what about his continuing influence on, you know, even moderates, I think sort of a stretch, actually, for, for Hillary Clinton to, uh, you know, have her relying on his counsel? What does that Yeah, I think future? that, well, part of it, I think the rehabilitation of Clinton among, uh, Kissinger among Democrats does date back to the Clinton administration, where the Clinton administration wanted to, claim Henry Kissinger as an advisor to give the young a young president kind of a seriousness of purpose and 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 there was a um there was the, the Kissinger's role in in convincing um in in helping Clinton get NAFTA through Congress so there was a there was a there was an alignment of 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 part of the Clintonian realignment of the Democratic Party yes. entailed an embrace of Kissinger, mm. uh, and I think that that's still going on. As I mentioned earlier, um, I think part of it is ritual, uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, be, trying to be near somebody who, who, who embodies, however falsely, the notion of purpose and seriousness. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Clinton, Samantha Power, they all want to kind of be near Kissinger, and, um, you know, now it's stick. I mean, it's pure stick, but, you know, but, but, um, but that is the kitsch of American power now, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's no substance. It's all just performance. Mm. Uh, thus, Donald Trump, <laughs> just yep. performance and, and uh, spectacle. So, yep. you know, it, it, it does... Uh, it's incredible, really. Uh, it's a fascinating book, and you know Kissinger said, despite the constitutional requirement, he didn't say this, but he acted on, despite the congressional uh, require the con- constitutional requirement for congressional approval of declaring war, he opposed any and all uh, congressional approval or oversight of foreign policy uh, as that would cripple the national security state. And yeah, of course, okay. we've launched ma- great many wars of that. I wonder, in light of this, and I hate to end on a down note, but in light of this, can it be said that Henry Kissinger perhaps permanently undermined our democratic system of government itself? Well, you see, this is where I want to, I don't want to blame everything on Kissinger because, uh, you know, it's not a devil's theory of war. It's not, it's not trying to, uh, you know, uh, locate a single isolatable cause of everything that's gone wrong. I think Kissinger, I mean, you know, it's the if we isolate that, him, that, that doesn't free up the other responsibility. But I think he reveals uh, a larger system. Yeah, that we have uh, gotten away from democracy with this uh, love of secrecy and this uh, this idea of permanent war. You know, it seems yeah. just it's unquestionably accepted now. Uh, the yeah. idea of, of of permanent war. It's important to point out that it's not just Kissinger. He's not the only bad guy. And if we were to, you know, deal with him, then we'd be free and, and we'd be a much right. better nation. But but uh, this uh, permanent war, do you think we can ever get out from under that? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Not by maybe not by our own volition. I mean, I think that you know there will be limits imposed at some point, um, and there is you know uh, being imposed, and it's a question of how how we accept those limits. You know, if is there going to be a new generation of militarists that pushes everything once mm. more to the brink? But I, you know, I, I think the margin of action becomes short, smaller and smaller with every. Every time that that happens, I mean, what, I mean, just look at the Middle East now. I mean, it's a it's a complete disaster. It's a, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, there's a dog chasing its tail quality to the Middle East. I mean, are we supporting Assad? Are we supporting ISIS? Are we supporting Al Qaeda? You know, I mean, setting aside you know to the degree that our actions created the created the disaster. Yeah. You know, um, there's a way in which. Um, you know, U.S. militarism has created a kind of funhouse reality in the Middle East. Mm. I mean, with with tragic and catastrophic, tragic consequences and catastrophic potential. Well, I am still of the opinion that we can, with some heavy lifting, keep democracy alive. It's a fascinating book. Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman, Greg Grandin. The publisher is Henry Holt and Company. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, and thank you so much. It's been... And, and working to keep democracy alive with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Talk I'm your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. It hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy you put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won you want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers for the others to fire and Then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion While the young people's blood Flows out of their bodies And is buried in the mud He's thrown the worst fear That can ever be hurled Fear to bring children 
into the world of all threatening my baby unborn and unnamed you ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins 